Welcome to Scores and Pours, the podcast where you learn about wine and classical music, hosted by Sommelier Gilmont and myself, radio host Emily Reese. Today we're going to talk about rules. Everybody's following rules. Yeah. Emily's going to talk about 12-tone, atonal music. Yeah. I'm going to talk about the rules surrounding port wine and the growing of those grapes. Interesting. Uh, check out patreon.com slash scoresandpours for a full playlist and a wine list or a port wine list, and consider supporting the musicians you hear by buying their music. Hi, Jill Mott. Why, hello, Emily Reese. How's it going? Going okay these, <laughs> during these times of, you know, COVID and the like? Yeah, it's hard not to be distracted. That's for sure. That's why I brought the strong stuff today. I love it. I cannot wait to try this. Because I was telling you, I, I know, I'm, I'm pretty sure I've had it before, but it's been years and it was probably only once. And so I'm just so excited to learn more about it. And when I'll be curious what type you, you, you may have had, even though you don't remember, because yeah. there's so many types of port and... What's usually served in restaurants or, you know, could be around lingering in someone's liquor cabinet is A, it's been open too long, B, it hasn't been stored correctly, and C, it's usually of the ruby or the tawny varietal of like the base quality level that can be super delicious. I enjoy them from time to time, but today we're going to drink vintage port. Love it. And somewhat old vintage port, which is kind of fun. Super cool. So tell me, too, about atonal music, because when we talked about this a few weeks ago, mm-hmm. we were talking, you know, solidifying what the show was going to be about, and I said, rules, so you're doing rules, right, on atonal music, and you mm-hmm. were like, Arr! Yeah, be careful. Yeah, because that's like, I mean, there's tonal music and there's atonal music. So within tonal music, there's all kinds of subgenres, and within atonal music, there's all kinds of subgenres as well. And we're going to talk about the one called uh, 12-tone technique. There are actually a lot of different names for it, which can get confusing, but we're just going to call it 12-tone music today. And it was invented in the early 1900s and has some pretty strict rules, uh, but it's really fascinating stuff. And uh, so that's what we're going to talk about today. Yeah. And, and on the port side, the reason I chose to specifically talk about not only port wine, but vintage port is we have gone into rules and rules being followed in Chinon in an area for Cab Franc, right, Mm -hmm. Um, in France. But I wanted to choose a region that is like their book for making wine or growing grapes is like 10 times heavier than, say, Chinon. Hmm. And so we could have chose Champagne, but we have had Champagne and Pet Nats on the show before. Not that Pet Nat is Champagne, but we've had sparkling wine on the show. And we've never had port... uh, Port wine is sort of, I think it's a wine that, especially in the natural wine world, is is sort of all but forgotten. It's expensive. Usually people only collect it, if, you know, hmm. if it's in the higher end category. And so then you're getting into a certain demographic that drinks it. And it's just, I don't know, I wanted to bring it because I thought it would be fun to talk about the rules surrounding it because it's minutiae that unless you're like a, like 
really embedded in the sommelier culture. Yeah. Uh, you don't really know that, a lot of those rules. And yeah, it's just fascinating stuff and it's delicious to drink, you know, once every 25 years and great. Amazing. I used to drink it a lot. Really? And once I got into natty wine, I was like, well, it just doesn't, it's it's a different beast all in an, all of itself and we'll, we'll okay. talk about that later. Okay, cool. Uh, so how do you how do you want to start? How do you want to start, start talk- with some atonal music? Please do. Okay. Because mine atonal twelve tone music. Yeah, because I'm going to talk. We're going to rule, 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 rule <laughs> about viticulture because that's what's most fascinating. I find in port. Okay. The port wine world. Awesome. And then we'll taste a little bit later. So yeah, let's oh, listen and good. let's chat. Okay. So in Western music, there are twelve notes in the Western music chromatic scale. C, C sharp, D, D sharp, E, F, F sharp, G, G sharp, A, A sharp, B, and back to C. And all of, all of those, so one could say all of those that are on the piano, if they exactly. were looking at a piano. Okay. Yep, everything on the piano. So that encompasses those 12 notes. Now, uh, in tonal music, we talk about harmony all the time. And in tonal music... It's structured off of what are called triads, and things are in a key. So that's why you see symphony number two in F major, or piano sonata 12 in A flat minor, or whatever. And explain triads. Well, I will in just a second. So what that means is if we're, let's just say, symphony number one in C major. So we're in C major. A C major triad would be a, a... a stack of notes that are that have a space between them, so three notes apart. Okay. C E G. Is a triad. Okay. So easy enough. Uh, uh, yep. If you look at if anybody looks at a map of a piano, easy enough to follow. Okay. Yeah. Yep. So in tonal music, pretty much everything's based off of triads in some way, shape, or form. And if we're in C major, then you can. In a lot of cases, hum the note C through the whole piece, and it'll basically sound okay. It'll mostly stay what we would say consonant. It won't. It won't be dissonant. It'll sound pleasing. It won't sound clashing. Okay. So it has that tonal center of C major. Atonal music seeks to break all of those boundaries. So in tonal music, where C major, C is a very important note. D would be less so because we're not in D major. We're in C major. Mm-hmm. In atonal music, they want to get rid of all of that so no notes are more important than any other notes. Great explanation, so- <laughs> Emily Reese. I love that. Okay. So this permeated into music in many, many ways. Firstly, in uh, 1919, a man named Joseph Hauer developed what he called a 12-tone technique using 12 notes of the Western chromatic scale, and he based some rules off of it. And then another guy, Austrian, they were both from Austria, a guy named Arnold Schoenberg, four years later, wrote his 12-tone rules, and that became the popular set of rules for the 12-tone technique by this man named Arnold Schoenberg. Okay. And so in 1923, he published his, his set of thoughts. And how it works is you take the 12 notes and you create what they call a row using all 12 notes. And you determine the order, right? So you come up with how you want 
this row to go. So in just a moment, you're going to hear a piece that Arnold Schoenberg wrote using his 12-tone technique. It's his suite for piano, and I'll explain more about that piece in just a moment. But I want you to hear the row that Arnold Schoenberg constructed for this piece using all 12 notes of the chromatic scale. So here it is. Sometimes it's helpful to think of it then as that's your theme, is that that, that, that order of notes. Okay. Okay? Then what they would do is they would take that row and they'd move it up a step or down a step. They'd move it around, start it on a different note, but keep all of the spaces between the notes the same. Okay. So transpose it, it yep. would be that what that's called. They could invert it, which would mean... Instead of... You're sort of flipping the back and the front around, but leaving the middle the same? Careful. Careful. Ooh, okay. Uh, so with inversion, if we say that the first two notes of our row are C to D, if we inverted it, instead of going up a whole step, it would go down a whole step. Okay. C to B flat. Okay. Now, retrograde. Ooh. That's backwards. So mm. retrograde, if your first two notes are C and D and your last note in the row, your 12th note is F sharp, then that's where you start in retrograde and you go backwards, just literally like almost, it's a different kind of mirror, right? Yeah. In, instead of being an up-down mirror, it's yeah. a backwards-forwards mirror. Just like Mercury. Just like Mercury. Okay. Here's the row that Schoenberg wrote, the original row in its original order. The first three notes are E, F, G. The last three notes are C, A, B flat. In retrograde, the first three notes are B flat, A, C, and the last three notes are G, F, E. So it's a backwards rendition of the uh, prime original row. Here's what that sounds like. And then there's one more way they can do it, and that would be retrograde inversion. Ooh. So that would be backwards and upside down. So like Mercury while you're PMSing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Sorry, guys. I couldn't, couldn't help yeah, myself. That was a good one. So this is what retrograde inversion sounds like, and I'll just recap what that means again. They take the 12-note row, uh, and they invert it. So the intervals that were going up are now going down, and the intervals that were going down are now going up. And then they also apply retrograde to that. So that means you start at the end and uh, go back to the beginning. This is what it sounds like in retrograde inversion. So you take 12 notes. You can do those things with that row of notes. Uh, there are other rules in the row. You're not supposed to repeat a note, so you can't go C, D, blah, 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 and then have another D in there before the end of the row. So when you're when we're thinking of atonal, twelve tone, yes, we could also say atonal, 
some other type of tone, right? Like there's a lot of different subgenres, like you were saying, right? Yeah, of, yeah. Okay. Their composers built music off of four note sets of four, you know, so little sets of four notes instead of 12. Like the 12 tone is a, this, the whole row, all yep. 12 notes. But composers like Bartok were very interested in writing in sets of four. There were uh, hexachords. And Schoenberg did some of that as well. So six-note sets as opposed mm -hmm. to a 12-note set. Okay. Sometimes within their 12-note sets, they would extract uh, sections of it. Okay. Four notes of here and there and, and permeate that throughout the piece. So yep. there were a lot of different ways they could do it. Sometimes you'd hear six of them at the six of the 12 at the same time, right? So you'd hear a bunch of the notes. So it's not it's not like you're sitting there literally able to follow the row. Yeah. Right? And so when you try to determine how a composer wrote a 12-tone piece, it's it's very mathematical. And you fill out this whole matrix so that you can see what every transposition is backwards and forwards of that row, and then you can go through the piece and see how they put it together. It's fascinating. That sounds like my mind every day. Yeah. I need to look more into this. It, I mean, so. I'll tell you what. When I started studying 12-tone music, I fell in love with it. I, I thought I absolutely thought those composers were blasphemous. I thought they were sacrilegious until I started studying it, and then I just it blew my mind. It just really opened my mind to a way of thinking about creating music that is it is challenging, mm -hmm. but can be beautiful and can be fascinating too. So, what are we going to listen to? We are going to listen to. Uh, we have three pieces we're going to hear today, and the first is from Arnold Schoenberg, and it's the very first piece that Arnold Schoenberg wrote where he used his twelve tone technique for the entire piece, up until this piece, which is known as his Suite for Piano, his Opus Twenty Five. He he dabbled with his technique in a couple other pieces, just in single movements of those pieces. In this suite for piano, all the movements are are in the twelve tone uh, technique. Cool. We'll just hear a little bit of the first mo first movement, and and you'll hear right away that you're going to hear notes sounding at the same time. And so you know, it's not like a composer takes all twelve notes and plays all twelve in a row. So you know what I mean? I mean, they're in a row. They're just in a maybe simultaneous row or, or something along those lines. So okay. here's a little bit of uh, the first movement of Arnold, Arnold Schoenberg's Suite for Piano, which he wrote, uh, published in 1923. So if we were listening to a tonal piece of music, we could find the home key and sing that note and it would sound good mm -hmm. we can't there's no home key in atonal music so you can't find a common tone yeah dun, right you can't sing that throughout the whole correct okay That's a little Schoenberg. And which one was that of the three we were going to hear? That's his suite for piano. The other two pieces we're going to hear are by different composers. No, but what what piece is that trying to demonstrate a certain one of the few ways that you can make atonal? You know, you're talking about the inverted. Oh, the oh I'm so glad you asked that. Okay, 
Because when I was explaining all of that, all of that happens in the same piece. So the composer will write the row, and ah. then within one composition, they'll use it in inversion, in retrograde, in retrograde inversion, and in any number of transpositions of that. So wow. when you make a 12-tone row, this isn't always the case, but in many cases, you can come up with 48 different rows from your original, well, so 47 plus your original row, which is called the prime row. So, you know, there's a lot of variety there, and that's how composers then use it in one piece. So it goes by super fast, and you would literally need to sit down and analyze, okay, right here, Schoenberg's using this row transposed to the yep. sixth scale degree in retrograde inversion. So it almost helps if you read music. Yeah. Like in order, you couldn't really analyze this if you didn't read music. Correct. I mean, it would be really difficult for someone to do it in their I mind. mean, someone would have to have Savant perfect pitch or so, some kind of understanding without reading music. I mean, yeah. you'd have to be able to count intervals and things along those lines. It's very complex, you know, and that's what turns a lot of people off to it. It's tremendously intellectual in that way but can also be very beautiful, which we'll hear some more lyrical pieces as well. It can also be way more hectic than what we just heard. Mm -hmm. um, did that make sense? Yes, Okay. totally. Cool. Um, I said we were going to drink later, but that's... Let's drink now. <laughs> it's, it's ridiculous. <laughs> uh, we're in times of COVID. We need our port. Yes. Okay, so I need a... Um, a oh, screen. I got it. I got it. I have a radio station set up in my house right now, so things got moved around a little. <laughs> Port. Port. So we're in Portugal. Oh, really? Why, yes. Is that for real? How it's why it's named Port? Yeah. Well, <laughs> Portugal is the home, the birthplace of Port. They've been making Amazing. port style wines, and we'll talk about what that is in a moment. In California, in South Africa, in Australia, all over the world, really. But they you can only call it port wine if it's from Portugal. The grapes need to be grown along, there are three subregions with along the Douro River that empties into the greater Atlantic Ocean. The closest village is Oporto and Villanova de Gaia. And so Oporto, that's where it gets its name. But I wanted to start talking about, we'll just, we'll follow it through history. We'll actually talk about what we're drinking uh, towards the end. But I wanted to speak to all of the rules that one must follow. I love it. I can't In wait. order to make a port. So the region that grapes are grown in, in Portugal, is one of the oldest demarcated, like regulated with boundaries regions of wine in the world. It was demarcated wow. back in 1756 by um, a Marquês de Pombal, I believe was his name. And he said, in order to make wine and make a port-style wine, it had to be grown in this area that I just spoke of. Sure. Fast forward from 1756 to 1927, and the dictator at the time, Salazar, put in place what was called the entreposto, which basically favored the monopoly of the port trade with people that had deeper pockets, that were established, that maybe had a an aging, an area to age all of these wines that were coming down the Douro River and being most of the time made 
very close to where those vineyards were. They would ship them down the river in boats that still is not done today for a practical cause, but they do have like races and they have people that replicate that for tourists and stuff. But the entreposto was put in place that said all wine that is going to leave here and that's going to be called port has to be passed through the this area very close to where the Doro empties out into the Atlantic, Villanova de Gaia. Okay. That's where all the shipping houses are. And if you look at it online, you'll see all of the very famous names right along the river. Nowadays, they have fancy tasting rooms and stuff, but that's where they <laughs> used to, and in many cases now, age the wines. And that favored, you know, there were a lot of people that couldn't afford to like ship all this wine and have it they only yeah. made such a small amount, and they would try to sell it from their doors in the further inland, we'll mm-hmm, say. Mm-hmm. So the entreposto favored was a sort of a, a monopoly of sorts that has been since like eradicated in 1986 when Portugal became part of the EU, but it was for the longest time a rule that people needed to follow. Wow. In 1933, the Instituto do Vino do Porto, that is now melded with other dry and not fortified wines okay. uh, from the Douro, They were formed very similar to many other places in the world, Rioja, Champagne, to say someone that's going to actually legalize a lot of these things, put put it down in writing and saying, you have to do this, 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 squared times 5,000 to to call it a port. Yep. Wow. So you have that in 1933. Then this is the most fascinating part for me. So in the 40s, they came up with a vineyard classification system, which doesn't seem out of the norm, right? There's okay. vineyard classification systems all over the world that says this place is better than that place. <laughs> oh, no, not to this degree. Really? So vineyards are classified A, letter A, through letter F slash I. It's, it's, they've added to it since, okay. um, since the 40s, but A through I, and you get points for each of the following. They have in different... Different items that I'm going to mention here have different point allocations. Okay. Altitude, your aspect. So what are you directionally towards the northwest, towards Ah. the northeast in the sun? Your vine age, your soil. Do you have more granite? Mm -hmm. Do you have more schist? Or do you not have either? Uh, The grapes planted. There are over 90 approved varietals that can be in port wine. Wow. So... Do you have the lucky five big ones? Because you're going to have a higher points uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. if you have one or all of those as opposed to all these uh, not recommended, but they are authorized. Okay. Your vineyard management, like what are you doing? How are you managing your canopy that we talked about in the last episode that we recorded of Scores and Pours? Mm-hmm. The gradient, what degree are is your slope or sure. your terrace? Your productivity you, how, how many kilos do you produce a year? The training, the way that they're like actually trellised yep. and the village that you're in. Wow. Okay. Now keep in mind for any number of these, you can have a certain point value. I think that is a fascinating thing. A lot of people that even that invest in port don't mm-hmm. know about this vineyard classification system. Mm-hmm. And I will talk more, but I think that I just kind of want to taste this. I do too. I don't know what port is though. 
Okay, so port is, I know I was going to get to that later, but let's get to it now. Port wine, the grapes need to be grown within the, a demarcated area that I was telling you about that is right along the Douro River. It's separated into three subregions. So the f- closest to the ocean, still quite far inland, is the Baish or Baish Korgo. You have the lower Korgo, as it's known. You've got the Chima Corgo, which is like the middle or the higher part of the Corgo area. And then the Duro Superior, which is furthest inland, one of the warmer areas. You need to be using one of those 90 different varieties, um, any combination thereof. And it's a wine that's fortified. So by fortified, I mean it's they're using a neutral grape spirit to make it a stronger alcohol content. And then after that, it really depends on what style you're making for the laws you need to follow. Okay. And so I'll tell you more about this one when that we get there. Good. Yeah. But you have to have this, they call it a celo de garantia, which is like the, the. I just translated it into Spanish for myself then, the sello <laughs> de garantia, which is like the guaranteed seal that it's port. Mm-hmm. So um, governing body will issue with a number. Yeah. The seal that is like comes up and over the cork and can't be broken. Yeah. And then on top of the cork and the seal is where the, the metal capsule is. Yeah. So let's pierce this. We're drinking a 2003 Churchill's Vintage Port, which um, it's coming out of a 375 milliliter bottle. For those of you that collect port, you'll know that that means something. Um, <laughs> some people prefer smaller bottles because you can drink them. Vintage port should be consumed within a day or two of opening. And so it's not uncommon that every, you know, most wine professionals know that bigger bottles age longer. They age quote unquote better. Mm-hmm. Smaller bottles age faster. And port wine can be aged a long time. Some people say 20 years, some people say 50 years. The oldest vintage port that I've ever had was from back in the 40s or no, 30s. Um, uh, with some owners of a port wine house uh, almost more than a decade ago now, to scores and pours. Scores and pours. Wow. Shit. Tastes like plums. Yeah. Prunes. But it's still incredibly fresh. Oh, yeah. So this is, you know, 2003 and we're in 2020. We're almost dealing with a 20-year-old wine here. It is kind of hot. Yeah. Um, meaning like hot alcohol, which you normally port can be that way. But this was also a very hot vintage. If I say 2003, anybody that's been in the wine business for 15 years or longer is going to be like, oh my God, 2003 was so hot. The wines are so big in that vintage. There's no acid in that vintage. Blah, 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 blah. Um, so that increases the, you know, this notion of like heat. It tastes kind of like... okay baked, but definitely it still has a freshness to it yeah. for sure. I was, I didn't know what to expect. I drink port like once a year. So yeah. I get a lot of like black fruits, plums, like you mentioned. Yeah. yeah it's really concentrated. It's very soft though, like smooth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Round. Yep. Um, that's the vintage too. Sometimes if you get a cooler vintage, it's not like that. They're kind of more chiseled or more chunky or more, it smells like a compote, you know, like it doesn't smell like fresh versions of all those fruits. It smells like yes. a compote or some Very sort of much. marmalade. Yeah. Um, atonal. Atonal. Where are we going next? So one of Schoenberg's students uh, was a fellow named Alban Berg. Berg was uh, born in 1885, died in 1935, and the very final piece he wrote was his violin concerto. And 
Alban Berg's Violin Concerto is considered one of the more beautiful 12-tone pieces. It's still atonal, so don't get any ideas. But it's, <laughs> it's not harmonic, right? It's not or whatever, but it's it's not very consonant. lyrical. And okay. the reason is uh, is because remember how I was telling you about triads earlier, how if we're in C major, a C major triad is C E G. An F major triad would be F A C. Or a D minor triad would be D, F, A. So these little groups of three notes that permeate Western tonal music and make everything sound harmonious and lovely. Berg constructed his row with some triads in it. And so that allowed for some interesting combinations of those notes to make it sound almost tonal, okay? Okay. So, for instance, the row starts as G, B-flat, D. And, and it continues from there. But basically the first five notes, well, really, I mean, there are so many triads built in here. There's G, B-flat, D. There's D, F sharp, A, which is a D major triad. There's A, C, E, which is an A minor triad. So see, his row, the way he wrote out his row has these triads in there. So let's listen to a little bit of Alban Berg's Violin Concerto. Oh, it's beautiful. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's so, it's just so much more melodic. There's a little Alban Berg, and and uh, which I guess so that's a combination. If we were to listen to that entire piece, we would hear a combination of all of those. 12 tone, and then the parts of the format, the inverted, mm-hmm. the um, retrograde, retrograde. Mm-hmm. we would hear all of those at some point yep. by listening to it. Cool. Yep, and we already have heard some of that yeah. in the little amount that we listened to. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's remarkable how, how they would take something so structured and create, you know what I mean? It's just, I don't know, it just really blows my mind. I find it really fascinating. So well, it's a, that's a cool overlap too, because when you say something so structured and make something you know melodic or lyrical mm-hmm. and smooth, like 
port is very much like that. You have this hot place that doesn't get a lot of rain that has a propensity to have kind of bombastic wines, and they definitely do. But in fortifying, it makes them stronger. And, you know, and we didn't mention this, but of course what we're drinking now is sweet, right? It's it's quite sweet. And that doesn't really sound like it can be elegant, you know, or, yeah. or lyrical. But when you get to a certain age of aged ports, they can really be pretty astoundingly elegant. Mm-hmm. And that beautiful... I was going to say mixing of like masculine and feminine, but I don't mean to say that. I kind of want to be like dandy and feminine. I don't know, <laughs> um, which is so not politically correct. I'm sorry. So should we get should we get yeah, to yeah, port? Yeah. Well, yeah. So let's jump back to port. Um, one thing I wanted to mention because we didn't really talk about this uh, when we were tasting is when you put this in your mouth. For you, is it acidic? Is it alcoholic? Is it heavy? You know, how sweet do you think it is? It's very sweet. Uh, I don't find it very acidic. It's a little acidic, but I would never say like high acidity. Yeah, it's almost masked by some people might say it is, but they're, what they're really tasting is the alcohol. Yes, def- yeah. definitely, because it's, I can tell it's super high in alcohol. Like the first drink I had just heated up my whole insides. This is 20% alcohol. Yeah, so that's intense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I agree with you on all fronts there. I wanted to just briefly go back, or in a typical Jill Mott fashion, not so briefly, go back to (laughs) in the 1940s, I talked about the vineyard classification. They also put in what is called the beneficio, which there was a quota for how much grapes to port people could produce. And that beneficio, I think, is still around today. Like if you produce X amount of kilos, a grower does, they can in a year the governing body will put a beneficio that says, okay, this year, x grower, you know, people are only in this subregion, you're only able to have this much go to port production. And that's worth way more money than dry wine grapes, even if they're from the same vineyard. Oh. So, but, so what people will do is maybe if someone only has one vineyard, it's a land of small vineyards that usually sell all their stuff to these bigger port houses. What they will do is they'll take less money I want to say it's less than half of per kilo for port wine grapes. Whatever the beneficio is, once they've reached that, then they have to, they only can get money for dry wine grapes, okay. um, which is kind of complicated, but that's another law. Then there's something called in 1959 called the Ley de Tercio or Terzo, which is basically saying that anybody that's going to make port has to have a three to one ratio in stock for whatever they release. So if you release 150,000 liters, mm-hmm. you know, you have to have three times that in reserve to age. Who the hell cares? To make, a, make a blend. <laughs> well, I mean, who's that favoring, right? That's oh, favoring. people who can make enough of it. And, uh, of course. Yeah. And people that can make enough, which mm-hmm. means they can afford that, right. which means they can start paying all kinds of taxes. Yep. They can pay all kinds of real estate for, mm-hmm. you know, to set up shop, etc. Yep. Et so it's, you know, it's a it's a place that makes incredible, really age worthy wines, but it has come at a cost. Yeah. You know, and it, in this day and age, there aren't really a lot of super small producers because there just can't be. No, there couldn't and, be. I mean, you could be making, and I think that at that Le du Terco or Terzo also said that you have to have a minimum at one time of one hundred fifty thousand liters in stock. 
So what does that tell you? Wow. In stock. So, of course, you could be releasing one-third of that. Yep. But you just have to have the money to just even buy all the, the barrels right. to keep all that is right. just, like, insane. Wow. So fast forward to what we're drinking right now. Okay. Because we could talk about the 60s. We could talk about more dictatorship and more things that have happened in Portugal. We won't. Okay. We'll just talk about uh, what we have in front of us. So grapes, when they're harvested, they have to have a minimum of 11% potential alcohol in order to have them even register to be to qualify for port production. Bef- but like when you pick them off the vine? They, they have, have to have, have a potential alcohol, which is measured in sugar, oh, oh. sugar levels. Okay, okay. Um, how port wine is made once they've achieved that 11% alcohol and gotten the ripeness that they want – both aromatically and and alcohol and sugar level, um, they're going to harvest the grapes and they'll pour them into traditionally what's called a lagar, which is a concrete basin that's about I don't know up to I can say up to my knees uh, deep because <laughs> I've done it before. Yeah. Um, and people will tread grapes, and that natural the yeasts that are around there will initiate a fermentation. The first two hours, it's incredibly hard work, actually. And people are like, oh, that'd be fun to go, like, trod grapes in Portugal. And I'm like, you know, actually, when you do that for two hours. Yeah. And you, the first two hours, you do it in a very, like, back and forth format mm-hmm. with your neighbor. You're Sometimes you're all holding each other's shoulders. Sometimes you're just walking. But it's, like, very calculated. Okay. And then the last two hours, you drink and play music, and you're like running all over <laughs> in the pit. <laughs> barefoot. Um, barefoot, of course, yep. And so that's the way that you're breaking up the grapes. You're commencing fermentation um, with and, and mixing all of these great skins and pips and it's in some stems sometimes with the actual must, the grape juice. Now they have machines that can do that, like, do that for people, and... That's obviously not as artisanal and not as cool. Um, There are still many houses in that region that do both. That's usually done on site. Like that's done like on the banks of the Douro River further inland at these port houses. That's usually not done. You know, they're not shipping grapes for the most part down to Villanova de Gaia to, to do that kind of work. Most of the time, the sweetness level in port is a natural sugar. And in order to keep that, you have to fortify that early because if you let the wine ferment too dry, then you have to back sweeten it, which is you're able to adjust your sweetness with something called geropigas. I'm not even going to go there. Okay. But, you know, you want to have as natural and as inherent beautiful sugars as possible. So you're fermenting at the beginning, going towards the middle of the process. And that's when you're dumping this, I think it's a 77% is about the average percent of alcohol that is this neutral grape spirit, this aguardente, they call it. Okay. um, That they're spiking it with. And what that does is that halts fermentation. In so the port, in the in in the wine, in the in the wine, or in the grape, we'll say grapine because it's like grape juice that's wine. Okay. You know, it's kind of like yeah. ferment in the process of fermenting. Okay, you pour in the aguardente that stifles fermentation, and then you're left with a sweet juice that is strong and needs to be aged. Um, and that's where, depending on what you're going to make, you're either going to make a bottle-aged wine or a wood-aged wine. And what we're drinking here, a vintage port, is a bottle-aged wine. It's meant to mature 
in the bottle. Okay. You're not paying for it to mature in a barrel. And then be bottled and then... Which is funny because you'd think it'd be the other way around. The wine is sitting in a winery yeah. for so many years, so you're paying for that rent. But yeah. it's the other way around. They've manufactured it such that... <laughs> Actually, you get to pay more for it, and then you get to sell it, and then you can't, like, that's just like, they've worked that out real well in their yeah. favor. Um, but I'll, I'll talk about the ins and outs of vintage port Yeah, uh, when we're done with some atonal. Okay, cool. Do you like this profile? Do you like this flavor? What do you Yeah, mean? I think it's really good. I can see why it's something that I wouldn't want every night, Mm-mm. you know, and I can also see why is this not sometimes called dessert wine? This is called dessert wine. Yeah. yeah. Most people would have this as dessert and they would have it either with, you could see chocolate and nuts and all of that. I love it with blue cheese. Mm. The classic pairing for vintage port is either Stilton or Roquefort. Okay. Something Stilton, obviously, with the English tie is more appropriate. Um, okay. But blue cheese that's really salty, really funky. But then again, if you're drinking really fine port mm-hmm. that's old, yeah. that's going to just make a salty mess and you're not okay. going to be able to taste nuance when okay. you're trying to like. So why does it have to be, it has to be aged? It's always aged? I mean, it's always, anybody that's buying and investing in port, they're probably, if they're buying a case of a vintage, which most, a lot of people that collect do, of course they're going to crack one open right away to see what it's like. But um, okay. I've never bought a bottle of vintage port myself that I haven't aged at okay. least 10 to 15 years. Wow. Okay. Um, and right now I have things in my cellar that are from the oldest bottle I think I have is from the 90s. But okay. then Madeira is the same way. Like I, if I'm buying old vintage Madeira, I'm going to sit on that stuff. I'm not going to drink it. I don't know what Madeira is. Oh, that's for another episode. <laughs> <laughs> Luigi Dalla Piccola. Oh. I want to name my next kitty that. Again, again, again. <laughs> Luigi Dalla Piccola. Yes. <laughs> 1904 to 1975. And in 1952, he wrote his daughter a piano piece for her birthday. And it's called Quaderno Musicale de Ana Libera. Something like that. And, and it's really beautiful. Quaderno Musicale de Ana Libera. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I could help and myself. There it is. Yep. And uh, Dalla Piccola is is well known for being one of the more lyrical and beautiful composers, kind of like Alban Berg was as well when we use this 12-tone technique. It's devoid a lot of times 12-tone music. Remember how I told you earlier that some composers were really controlling about dynamics as well, which stands true in tonal music too. I mean, some composers were really freaked out about making sure dynamics were just perfect in every spot. Richard Wagner, for one, uh, who we've talked about before on the show. Um, Beethoven, even, was very specific with his dynamic markings, which is, you know, how loud or soft to play something, right? Uh, in in a, some 12-tone music, the dynamics can be pretty um, uh, sudden, a lot of sudden, really loud to really soft kind of things are just super quiet. And then um, Dalla Piccola kind of was just a little more chill than that. He was just like, you know, he was just writing a piece of music using a 12-tone row, kind of. So let's listen to a little bit of uh, his Quaderno Musicale, which was originally, as I mentioned, written for solo piano, and then he uh, turned it into an orchestra piece uh, several years later, which is also very lovely. So here's a little bit of that. (laughs) ¶¶ 
of four note sets in this piece as well which there's a whole story about that because he's paying tribute to Johann Sebastian Bach with those four notes um, but that that's also a, a good topic for another another day Does it take a certain type of pianist, do you think, that would not rather play, but that says, hey, you know, I'd actually like to give these guys a shot as opposed to playing? Yeah. You know, okay. I I think so, because one of the things to me that's so hard about atonal music is because we grow up in Western culture accustomed to Western harmony, we know in a lot of cases what to expect, when we're playing, when we're literally performing a piece of music, you know, when you're, for instance, a, a some kind of adept musician and you're reading a piece of music for the first time, if it's a tonal piece of music, you can kind of know what to expect and you can see patterns and anticipate things because mm-hmm. of harmony. And with atonal music, you, you can't do that. I mean, it, there's no okay, we're coming up to the cadence, so we're going to have a big five chord go to a big one chord. I mean, that's just not how it works. And so to me, it's a very different mindset in turning it into a, you know, musical thing. I mean, Mm -hmm. I don't know. I I don't want to get myself in trouble because I do, I have a ton of respect and quite enjoy 12-tone music and atonal music in general for the most part. But, um, well, there's a lot I don't like for sure. But it's just, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely a special skill to be able to interpret that music well. Okay. That was a super long answer. I'm sorry. No, that's all right. I'm, I'm curious for multiple reasons. Yeah. So, yeah. I think wines like this are also really hard to understand because – you know, people can taste this and they can go, wow, that's cool. That's fun. That's nice. That's like sweet or it goes great with, you know, blue cheese or um, they can understand why it tastes like it does, like the process. Mm-hmm. But unless you have experience with old port, then it kind of, I think that is honestly, so just a, a quick anecdote, like me, I, one of my probably well, I was going to say fifth or sixth positions in wine. I was like buying port <laughs> wine for this big shop in Chicago. And my clients were mostly like very wealthy 40 to 80-year-old white men. Mm. You know, they would come and then they would be asking the, you know, 28-year-old yeah. young white woman yeah. what vintage is great, what vintage is drinking well. Because I'd, I'd traveled there and I had done a lot of a lot of sourcing and – and I remember that that in of itself was kind of a strange place because a lot of other regions of the world you have it's kind of all over the map people that are drinking those, but okay. port oh, it's, it's like a certain specific. type of person that's drinking port. It's like collectors, 
you know, and having sat in Portugal and tasted with a lot of Portuguese and English men and mm -hmm. American men, mm -hmm. being the only woman there and the only young, there was one other woman, she was like one of their wives or something, to be the only woman in the trade hanging out with all these guys and watching how just that dynamic is really different and how people taste and how people blind taste. And yeah. they were so generous to share all these amazing ports. I won't mention the house that did so, but they would come out with blind wines and blind all of us on stuff. And, you know, I'm 28. So yeah. I've granted, I've had a lot of old port, thankfully by that time, okay. but to have the owner of these houses being like here, what do you think this is? Wow. And to know that they were not only sharing their house's wine, they were sharing, obviously they have access to and trade with all their buddies Yeah, to taste and say, this is this vintage. I think it's this house because houses have a different style, you know? Sure. They all have, just like we've talked about producers here on Scores and Pours that we like, you can kind of taste that this is Fabio's wine or this is Samuel's wine. I don't know, I just think that port wine starts there's more context created and it makes it a, a more special experience when you have that yeah which is unfortunate because i was in a position where i could never have afforded it at that time it was because i was working yeah. in the trade yeah. i had very generous you know importers distributors that knew that i could pull my weight but then i also had guests that would they'd share they'd invite me to things they'd share things with me so yeah i don't know just, it's just like if you listen to a 12-tone piece and you've never consciously listened to a 12-tone piece, it might not be your thing or you might not absorb it. But if you listen to 30 12-tone pieces, you're going to start to hear the nuance. Yeah. You know, and, and you'll start to hear the very uh, special ways that composers treated that technique. Now, Thankfully, that's free. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> we talk about port wine being for a 375 a half bottle nowadays, they usually start around $60. And usually Amazing. when we get up to the, the 750 milliliter, which is like the standard size that they're aging and selling port wine in, you know, they, they go for anywhere from $120-ish and up, and it depends on the mm. house. It depends on the vintage, if it's sure. a very heralded vintage, if it's a, a quinta, a very specific, you know, single vineyard that's they're declaring a port. Yeah. A couple things I wanted to mention about, also about vintage ports, that before you can even call it a vintage and declare like Churchill's did, hey, this is to slap 2003 and go sell it for X amount of money, mm -hmm. they have to submit a sample to the IVDP and they have to do this during the second year after that harvest. So okay. the wine has had time to evolve so that the IVDP can say, this is up to snuff, it's not up to snuff. Mm -hmm. Granted, the majority of them are approved because people aren't submitting things that are, yeah. you know, by this time they know how, how the system works. Yep. But vintage Churchills, for example, will only declare about three to four times in a decade will they make a vintage port. And if approved, it's usually bottled before its second birthday. So a wine is meant to then evolve further in a bottle in someone's private cellar, basically. Okay. And what's interesting, I just kind of decided to look at some numbers. In the 60s, there were three vintages declared. Okay. In the 70s, my favorite vintage was declared, okay. 1977. There were only two. In the 80s, there were four. In the 90s, there were eight. 
Okay. So as you can see, yeah. with global warming and the trend. What's and, global warming got to do with it? Well, wines are becoming richer, riper. They're becoming more the taste for sweeter things. Mm-hmm. What's was, that got to do with vintage, though? Well, because in the 60s and the 70s, there were what we would consider great has gotten a little bit more commercial. Okay. And it's gotten a little bit more kind of standardized and bombastic. Mm-hmm. And so it's easier to make that Okay, now that we can be granted and guaranteed a certain type of harvest every year. We're not worried about like, oh my gosh, are we going to be able to get that 11% ripeness? Okay. That was a big question back in the 60s. Okay. Like, is it going to be warm enough to get to that level gotcha. of alcohol? It's plenty warm enough now. Exactly. Yeah, gotcha. Um, and granted that 11% has shifted through the years, mm-hmm. but now we're, they could, if they wanted to declare port vintage every year, they could. Yeah. But then it wouldn't be special. Right. But now, right. I mean, eight in the 90s, give me a break. Wow, yeah. And that was, in 90s was like, I think one of the apex times of like wanting big, huge, sweet things. Sure. You know, okay. in yeah. the world of wine. Cool. Port. Port. Well, uh, cheers. Are we listening to anything else? No, we're good. All right. Well, I'm, that's good. That's, I'm good. You don't, okay. <laughs> just have a little more, have a little more sugar, Emily Reese, a little All more right. alcohol. Come on. Um, I guess I want to ask your opinion. Okay. I was going to go off on my opinion, but let me ask you first. Okay. When you hear all these rules, and I know of you probably- port? Yeah, port yeah. wine production. Mm-hmm. More more, just all the things viticulturally, like on the growing side of things, because they have to be grown a certain way. And Yeah. Like, do you taste this and you go, oh, that's good. That's delicious. Wow. I would, on a special occasion, spend $25 for a glass of that. Hell yeah. For two ounces. Yeah. Okay. I, th- I think it's delicious. It's a treat. Okay, that's Because cool. you don't, because the thing that's cool about it is uh, it's 20%. <laughs> cool. Uh, it's also very thick and sweet, which is cool. I mean, it's just totally, it's totally different than a normal glass of wine. So it definitely it seems special. You know what I mean? So yeah, I would totally drop some cash to have some port from time to time. I love to hear that. I might even on my 44th birthday drop some cash for some port. <laughs> Who knows? Oh, that's hilarious. That's uh, great to hear. I go in and out of wanting to drop a lot of money on port because I just think there's so many things that are lively and cool and fun and age-worthy that mm-hmm. don't cost that money. For sure. But they also don't last yeah. this long. And they don't taste like this either. Correct, correct. I wanted to just, I think atonal music speaks to like a certain core of mine that is very planned, but also random. Mm -hmm. Like I could see a lot of the plotting of an before execution to be random Mm -hmm. and then to see how it pans out as it's being written. Yeah. And then that, that intrigues me a lot to get into the analyzing of it. Oh, yeah. I'll show you some stuff when we're done here. Cool, cool. Yeah. But I, I'm just going to show her graphs and charts. That's all. It's not going to be some like secret piece of music. I'm going to uncover this <laughs> the hidden key to or anything. I'm, no, but I, I'm glad that you played three very different sounds. Yes. Of and and the intricacies of them. Mm-hmm. You know, one being very lyrical, one being very slow and mm-hmm. melodic, and then the other, the first one being kind of. Yeah, a little aggressive. Yeah, mm-hmm. and also Can beautiful. Be. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so thanks for that. Thank you for the port. Cheers. For rules to scores and pours. Scores and pours. That are meant to be broken, just throwing that in there. 
thank you for listening to Scores and Pours with Jill Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this episode at patreon.com slash scores and pours. And we're on Instagram at scores and pours. If you like the show, consider making a financial contribution to patreon.com slash scores and pours. Edited by Emily Reese and Jill Mott. Our producer is Sam Keenan. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media Inc. Thank you.